Welcome back to Abstract, colon, the future of science, making graduate research unprecedentedly accessible. We researched in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're talking about the future of science. So let's go. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, where does insulin come from, and who is its biological partner in crime? How do protein, fat, and carbs interact in the process of digestion? Will I, Jeremy Ullman, or you, the listener, develop diabetes? And if so, what can I do to avoid or diminish the likelihood of that outcome? Can we create an artificial pancreas and mimic its insulin-regulating function? Is diabetes a fundamentally human pathology, or does it occur in other species? Answers to these and many, 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 many more questions on this episode of Abstract, episode 40. Let's go. Miriam Talbo is a dietitian with many interests. Apart from her clinical and community work, she's also developed a strong interest in research and academia. After completing a master's degree that solidified her interest in research, she went back to the School of Human Nutrition at McGill University to pursue a PhD. She was lucky enough to find the lab of Dr. Brazo, which was a perfect fit as it allowed her to work on diabetes, one of her main areas of interest. Miriam's research aims to inform us on how to best use technology as a tool to prevent and reduce both the fear and frequency of hypoglycemia. She uses data from the first Quebec-wide registry specifically for people with type 1 diabetes. She's also reviewing current clinical practices to develop an expertise-based consensus to answer some questions on diabetes management that still lack specific guidelines. Outside the lab, Miriam enjoys DIY and crafts projects, outdoor activities, and night walks. Her curious nature also fuels her desire to explore different places around the world, and she can't wait to attend her next non-virtual conference. For the time being, we're going to have this virtual discussion, which I'm sure will be fascinating. Miriam, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Very excited to have you on the show. We are just blasting through 2021 like it's nobody's business. Absolutely. So, so we're, we're still alive and well. I'm glad that you like night walks, although I feel bad because with the new restrictions, you're, you're, you're relegated to evening walks. Only. Yeah, unfortunately that cut my plans, but uh, hopefully it's coming back soon. Yeah. Have you kind of counteracted that by doing extremely early morning walks? No, I'm not a morning person. Oh, no? Not at all. No. <laughs> I'm, that's probably why I like night walks, because I'm definitely not a morning person. Hmm. Interesting. How much money would I have to pay you to wake up every day for a year at 6 a.m.? I would say maybe double of what I'm making Double, right Double now. what you're making. Okay. Double yeah. or nothing. Sounds good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sweet, sweet, sweet. So we're talking diabetes today. That's what we're talking. Everything and anything diabetes related. So I've, I've got a couple of questions that have been percolating since we first met. First and foremost, I think it's important that we just actually define the two types of diabetes. That, that's yes. that, that's at least as far as I know that there are two types and yeah. then we could we can discuss more about which one you're focusing on from the intro it seems like mainly type 1 diabetes 
Exactly, yeah. So there are two types of diabetes. There is type 1 and type 2. So type 2 diabetes is the one that people usually have when they have what we call an insulin resistance. So they are making insulin, but their cells are actually resistant to it. So insulin acts basically as a key that opens the doors of our cells to allow sugar to go in. If your cell is resistant, it means it's not using that key properly. So that's what ends up having type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes, on the other hand, is when the person is not making insulin at all for reasons that we don't completely understand for now. So the person is not making insulin. That means we need to give them insulin. And that's what happened a hundred years ago, not a thousand, a hundred <laughs> years ago when Best and Banting found that giving uh, insulin actually helped people who had type 1 diabetes survive. Before Best and Banting ran this groundbreaking study, were there other things that we tried injecting into people that, to see if that could improve the situation? Like, how many times did we fail before we got it right? From my understanding, it was pretty much a deadly disease. When a kid would have type 1 diabetes in a couple of years, couple of months, it was basically a death sentence. Wow. Other than that, the best that they could do was just to starve the patients to relieve the symptoms, and that was it. So... Before we figured out that injecting insulin was the way to handle this, were there any other drugs that were attempted to be used? I have a vague memory of using animal insulin that would cause actually either allergies or intolerances in the person who would take them, so that was not working. Mm -hmm. And then we moved on to the human insulin. Okay. If I'm deficient of insulin or my body's not uptaking correctly... Where am I getting my insulin from? Is it insulin I can get from your body or from anyone else's? Or do you need to kind of manufacture it using my own genetics? Well, now we're moving along that it's actually being just manufactured. So before that, we used to use insulin from pork, like from uh, animal source. Yeah. And then they moved on to human. And now it's manufactured by companies and then it's sold in the pharmacy that it does not have to come from a certain person or a certain someone. Oh, yeah. so it's completely synthetically made. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, that's incredible. What's the implication of the pancreas here specifically? Is the pancreas yeah, so really the mainly implicated organ? Exactly. So the pancreas has what we call beta cells, and it's these beta cells that make the insulin. So if you don't have these cells because either they were destroyed by your autoimmune system or something that happened that destroyed them, you do not make insulin anymore, and that's where you become insulin deficient. Can we inject beta cells into people's pancreases? There are some studies that are actually being done right now using stem cells to recreate or to help regenerating beta cells. There are also possibilities of having a transplant, a pancreas transplant. Wow, okay. That's more rare. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so it, it's, it's definitely being studied right now also to see if we can just treat it completely or avoid it. So yeah. Are there any other organs that are implicated besides the pancreas? For insulin specifically, no. But we have also the uh, hormone that's called glucagon, and that hormone does basically the opposite of insulin. So insulin basically helps reduce the sugar or the glucose in the bloodstream. Glucagon helps increase it. So what glucagon does is that it goes and tells our cells to secrete their storage of sugar. Because when we eat, some of it we use, some of it we store. Mm -hmm. So basically glucagon goes and tells our cells, hello, hi, please release that sugar because we need it. Okay, so opening the floodgates so that the sugar could then be kind of sent through the bloodstream to our, our cells, etc. 
This this sounds a lot like a perfect opportunity to smoothly transition into talking about hyperglycemia versus hypoglycemia. Are these intimately related to the interplay between glucagon and insulin? Absolutely, absolutely. So hyperglycemia, as the name says, hyper and glycemia, so it's high blood sugars. So that's what happens when you don't have the key or when you're not using that key to open the cells and allow the sugar to go inside. So the sugar just stays in the bloodstream traveling around and that's the state of hyperglycemia. A long state of hyperglycemia and over many years can cause the complications of diabetes that we know. On the flip side, there is the hypoglycemia. So hypoglycemia is the opposite. It's when you don't have enough sugar in your body that you start showing symptoms. You can have um, confusion. Sometimes people can lose consciousness depending on how severe the hypoglycemia is. And all of these things basically happen because your brain starts lacking sugar. So insulin comes in. If we take too much insulin for what we need, we're going to end up falling in hypoglycemia. Got it. If we don't take enough or we don't take it and we need it, we're going to end up in hyperglycemia. Glucagon now or in these past years, it has been also used to help with treating hypoglycemia. So now we have injectable and we also have a nasal glucagon that basically acts like a little nasal pump. And if someone has a severe hypoglycemia where they can't treated themselves either by drinking juice or having some candy or you know some simple sugars, we inject or we um, use the nasal glucagon that basically goes in their nose. Mm-hmm. And that actually could help bring back their glycemia to normal. That's amazing. But hold on a second. You're saying people who aren't capable of drinking juice can instead inject or, or instead can inhale something through their nose? So basically, you need someone else to intervene. Oh, right? okay. So sure, we, sure. Yeah. yeah. So it will act like a an EpiPen kind of thing. Uh, okay, Not absolutely. An inhalable yeah, EpiPen, yeah. yeah. Someone who's like physically incapable of actually I- administering yeah. themselves. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. I'm glad that we that, that we brought glucagon and insulin into the picture with hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia. There's a lot of terminology I think that many people are familiar with, but I'm glad that we just kind of brought them all together. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So two kinds of diabetes, type one and type two, which is more common? Type two is much much more common. Okay. Type one actually makes about 10% of everyone who has a diabetes. Okay. The issue is that, for example, I'm just going to take Quebec as an example, we don't actually have a record to differentiate between type 1 and type 2. So when someone is diagnosed and they go to the pharmacy to pick up their medication, it's just automatically written diabetes. There is no distinction. So wow. we don't really know the exact number. But for now, we assume there is about 300,000 people in Canada who are living with type 1 diabetes. Wait a second. That's 10% of the diabetic population. So you're saying there's 3 million people living with type 2 and diabetes? And increasing. Absolutely. Yeah, what? and increasing. Yes. That's like that's like it, 10% of the entire population. <laughs> yeah, so it is a very common condition right now, and it's only increasing. The incidence is just increasing. So it is the disease of now, basically. Mm-hmm. So with the way that we're eating right now, the lack of, of activity, we're being sedentary, all of those little lifestyle things actually just add up one on top of the other to eventually lead to insulin resistance, which leads to diabetes type 2. Okay, of all of these factors, which one leads you to be most likely to develop diabetes, if there's any that kind of rises above the pack? Yeah, so there is, of course, the family history. 
Okay. So there is a little genetic component as well, but it's mainly lifestyle. So someone who is really just having a healthy lifestyle. So being active, usually we say 150 minutes per week of activity, making sure that your meals are balanced, keeping uh, fast sugars low. So basically like not everything that's pop, soda, candy, and all of that, keeping it minimal. So really just what we're all taught about how to live a healthy lifestyle. That is the way. I have to ask, because I feel like this is just something that people don't really know about very much, or are, it's a bit of a contentious debate. What's your stance as a dietitian on Diet Coke? Um, it's tricky. So it depends, again. So for me personally, when I have, I'm talking to a patient who really, really likes to drink their Coke, and like the first step that we usually take is, okay, we can, we can go back to Diet Coke and slowly, slowly decrease it. The issue with Diet Coke and Diet Pepsi and all of those things is that the artificial sweeteners, yes, they don't have any sugar nor calories in them, but some studies have actually found that when we eat them or when we consume them, they give us this craving for sugar. So yes, you're not getting the sugar and the calories from the drink itself, but it has some mechanism that makes us crave the sugar and we end up getting it from somewhere else. Wow, that's amazing. I've never heard it put that way. So that's what I know about it recently. So like it's it's something that um, I also just discovered not that long ago. So it's very interesting to see how it could actually be counterintuitive. Yeah, and... That's fascinating because it's like you're tricking your body into thinking that it's in ingesting something sweet, but then you don't have that physiological response. So it's like your brain yeah. just, just has to exactly. find yeah. a way to reconcile that. Yeah, pretty much. You're baiting your brain and it needs that sugar. So it's going to go get it somewhere else. You heard it here first, folks. Do not trick your brain because your brain will trick you. The brain is in the control center. It is the control center. Wow, that is that is cool. Okay, I'm actually not a, a diet soda drinker at all. Do you dabble with the uh, sodas? No, uh, if I drink soda, to be honest, if I drink it, it's, which is very rare, I would just drink the regular one mm -hmm. and just like, you know, get my craving, drink it, move on. <laughs> yeah. And there's also the fact that I don't really like the taste. I don't know if you know, but there are some people who can have like who actually sense an aftertaste yep. when they consume artificial sweeteners. And I think I'm just one of those people. So when I drink a Diet Coke or something that has an artificial sweetener in it, I can actually taste mm -hmm. it. And it's not a very good taste. So. Do you know if, in fact, you are a super taster? I do not know. Okay. We don't need to go down the route of super tasting. But folks, yeah. if you're listening and you're interested in super tasting, you can uh, you can actually buy the, these, these little paper tests. And if you put a piece of paper on your tongue and it tastes bitter, you're a super taster, which means that you have particular propensity to like be off-put by specific kinds of flavors. And if you're not a super taster, you put that paper on your mouth, you don't taste anything. It's kind of like... Well, maybe either, I will try it. I did not it. know that was a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I learned something today. Excellent. It's, it's a bi-directional learning experience or many directional given that there are many yes. listeners right now. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in. Appreciate it. Okay, so now that we've spoken a bit about the types and the causes... And it seems like you're saying lifestyle really in, in kind of a broad sense is the biggest problem or rather problems with lifestyle are most likely to lead to the development of type 2 diabetes? Type 2, yes. Okay. So mm -hmm. I can't develop type 1 diabetes if I just sit on the couch drinking, diet, or drinking Coke and eating chips all day. Well, you'll develop other things like type 2, <laughs> yeah. hypertension, yeah. other things, but type 1 is really either genetic or just something that triggers your immune system and it starts attacking itself. Got it. So it's not something you do. It just happens mm. in a way. Yeah. Gotcha. 
Okay, so in the introduction, you mention how there's some big questions that remain to be answered in terms of diabetes management. What is like one of the biggest questions right now that all the researchers, including yourself, are just racking their brains trying to answer? The biggest one, to me at least, is the fact that now we are actually aware that it's not just sugar, it's not just carbohydrates that we need to pay attention to. It's also protein and fat. So one of the questions that I'm actually trying to answer is, what do we do when someone is having a big meal that has all of these components? Because basically, when if I just have the sugar by itself, I can sort of know how it's going to be absorbed into my body. But if I eat a meal that has sugar, has fat, and has protein, the protein and the fat basically, they slow down the absorption of the meal, of the sugar. So I'm not really aware of the rate that the absorption of the sugar is going to go with. For example, again, I'm having a slice of pizza and, you know, like a good, meaty, cheesy pizza. Yeah. I'm going to give myself some insulin, but that insulin that I just took is going to start acting now or in 10-15 minutes. But the sugar that I just ate in the crust, for example, is not going to be absorbed until 30-45 an hour later. So that insulin that I just took, it tried to do its job, and then it just, basically you took the dose, and then the dose has been used, but the big bulk of the sugar only came after. Oh, so it's just kind of operating on like an empty bowel, sugar-wise. Pretty much, yeah. So the Uh, big chunk of what it needs to actually work on, it came after, so it didn't work on it, and then you end up having a hyperglycemia, for example. So... yeah. I'm picturing like um, opening up the doors to a concert like six hours before the concert starts and then shutting the doors like an hour before and everyone's like, well, what's going on? And then they start playing the concert and nobody's inside because everybody got locked out. That's a very good analogy. I could not have said it better. (laughs) Thank you. you, I might start using it. (laughs) Hey, why not? Why not? That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. Okay. So that's that's the biggest question right now. Interesting. What, What kind of interactions are occurring between protein, fat, and sugar besides just slowing or affecting the release of things like sugar into the bloodstream? So usually, other than the mechanical sort of slowing down the absorption, once they are absorbed, when we store the sugar, what we can do is that if we have a lot of it, it's going to end up being stored as fat. So that sugar will turn into fat in in a very simplified way. In terms of protein, we break it down to little amino acids, and if someone needs energy, we sometimes end up using either the fat or amino acids as a source of energy. So really, they are very, they're interacting in, uh, in digestion, in absorption, in storage, and in the way they're used. If I'm going to go, let's say, for a 10-kilometer run, would you recommend to me to eat a balanced meal of protein, fat, and carbs? Or is there an optimal mixture of those where some would be included or or not? Like, so let's just say I'm going to be engaging in in some moderate aerobic activity. Mm -hmm. So usually if you're a healthy person who does not have diabetes, when we talk about consumption of carbohydrates or protein after, I'm going to talk more about after the exercise than not before, because I'm not very familiar with the before. But the after, I usually tell my patients to have a snack within the 30 to 45 minutes after the exercise, because that's when your muscles are absorbing the most. 
So you have a snack that has some carbohydrates and some protein, like I like to drink milk with some chocolate in it or like strawberry milk that has some sugar in it as well. Mm -hmm. And that's when your muscles will absorb it the most and will help with the recovery. So that is the key moment post exercise Mm -hmm. before the exercise for sure do not have a big meal right before like if you have your lunch maybe wait half an hour before going and little sort of common sense kind of things like that is this what has commonly referred to as the anabolic window yep excellent i used to be very much into weightlifting in high school and early cjep and so (laughs) now that i have an expert on the show i just want to ask all the questions So this guy walks into Starbucks and he says, hey, can you put the whipped cream inside the cup first and then pour the coffee over it? And they were like, absolutely. Thank you so much for telling me what you want. I am here to serve you and make your life infinitely better. Same thing applies here at Abstract. You speak and I listen. Leave me a review on Apple Podcasts and I'll have a look, see what you like, see what maybe you're looking forward to on future episodes. And shoot me an email at abstractcast at gmail.com and I'll absolutely answer you if you've got any questions or desires, any at all. Okay, back to the episode. Presumably there, there are some young fit folks who are listening here who also do exercise. So I, I do want to make sure that I ask a couple of questions for them. I know I already asked you about things like Diet Coke, but what about like protein shakes, for example? As a supplement... Do you think the average person actually benefits from them? Or do you think it's more indicative of a lack of actual dietary planning? Average person does not need to supplement with anything if they're having a balanced diet. That's in general. We can get everything we need from the foods that we have naturally, just using that as a buzzword. But you don't really need to go supplement protein or vitamins or minerals unless you have a condition Mm -hmm. or if you're not actually eating it from the diet. For athletes, if they are, you know, like the high level athletes where they need endurance and all of that, that's another realm of nutrition. They have their own rules that they play with. (laughs) For average Joe and average you and me, If you're going to work out and you want to have a protein shake because it makes you feel like you're actually working hard, go for it. But do not expect it to be a magical potion that's going to help you gain muscle mass because it's it's not. Sure. I, I'm asking specifically because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't broken because I used to I used to do a protein shake after every workout and I was still a pretty lanky guy. So it wasn't really working for me. <laughs> if it works for the listeners, then that's, then that's excellent. But thank you for just reaffirming to me that my body is not in fact broken and I'm just like the no, rest of us. It knows what it's doing most of the time. <laughs> Good. I'd like to think that it does. What kinds of technologies do you use in your research? I I want to kind of touch on that as a science podcast. I'm interested in things like technology as well. And you said that a lot of your research focus is actually looking on how to use these technologies to, as you say, prevent and reduce fear and frequency of hypoglycemia. Just to quickly get an idea, what are these technologies that you're using? Yeah, so the technology, specifically when I'm talking about diabetes technology, I talk about what we call insulin pumps, for example, and insulin pumps are little devices that continuously infuse or continuously inject the person wearing it with little doses of insulin. It's basically doing the job of a pancreas as if you took the pancreas outside. So it gives little micro doses of insulin continuously throughout the day so the person doesn't have to inject with a syringe or with a pen three four times a day or even more because the pump is doing it for them 
On the flip side, there is also what we call continuous glucose monitors. So these continuous glucose monitors that I'm going to refer to as CGM from yeah. now on, what they do again, it's a little device that the person puts on them and they have a tiny, tiny, tiny little needle inside that goes inside the person's skin. And what it does is that, again, continuously reads the blood sugar level, well, the sugar levels of the person. It's not, it doesn't go completely inside, so it stays in the what we call the um, interstitial fluid. But again, it saves the person from having to prick their fingers, again, four or five times, eight times a day to see what their blood sugar is. And it also tells them that throughout the day. So they can just take their phone, scan it, and it will tell them, or sometimes it communicates automatically with the phone and shows them what's going on in real time and the third step because the technology right now is very cool like i think it's advanced a lot and we're still going to see a lot of cool things coming out so now we have the newest kid on the block in a way is the artificial pancreas so it's exactly what the name refers to you have a pump with the cgm and they actually communicate together So you're wearing your CGM and your pump, you're going about your day, your CGM senses that you're going up, it's going to tell the pump, hey, maybe we need to give a little bit more insulin. Another example where this could be useful, you're going on about your day again, and but this time you start going low. So the CGM will detect that you're going low and it will tell the pump, hello, hi, please stop giving this person insulin because they're going low and we don't want them to go any lower. Mm -hmm. So it could actually save the person from having a hypoglycemia episode. So those are the technology that I'm talking about. Yeah, That's in, that's incredible. I, I also like how you really set that up in terms of the one and two coming together in the third case. This sounds like the kind of thing that I read an article about in like a popular science magazine like 12 years ago where they were like, we're working on this new technology. It doesn't exist yet, but we're hoping that maybe at some point in the distant future it does. And now we're here. Like this really sounds like the future is now in terms of I don't want to say a bionic human, but we've got pacemakers. We're getting there. You know, like the fact that you can you can connect an app from your phone to like what's actually happening in your pancreas is absolutely mind-blowing. Where do we even go from here? What kind of improvements can we make on these technologies? Well, definitely we need to fine-tune it, make it more precise, make it more sensitive to what it's reading. Of course, now when I when I explained it or when I described it earlier, it was really when it's working at its best. Okay. But of course, there are little technology issues. So sometimes the sensor or the CGM does not sense what's going on or it does not actually tell you what's going on. So you have to change it because it's not sensitive enough. Mm-hmm. Or the pump might get blocked or the pump might not actually communicate properly or, or, or. So <laughs> all of these little fine tuning things that we need to do is what we're going to go further for and to also make it more automatic. So the artificial pancreas that I just talked about, yes, the pump communicates with the CGM by themselves, but there are moments when the person has to interfere. So, for example, before I eat, I have to tell my pump how much I'm eating of sugar, of carbohydrates, so that it knows how much insulin to give me. So, for now, we don't have a technology uh-huh. that just looks at the food and calculates <laughs> the carbs in it. We're not there yet. We're getting there, we hopefully. We don't have, like, eye implants there. yet. <laughs> no. I can, I can just okay. stare at the food. That is one plate full of spaghetti and meatballs. Yeah. That could be something that uh, that comes out. But there is actually an app that you take a picture of your plate and it can sort of approximate the macronutrient in it we are getting there we didn't we didn't put it in our eyes yet but yeah. we're getting there. our eyes are not bigger than our stomachs or our pancreases <laughs> not 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 quite yet 
that's cool. Do you know of, of any applications of this kind of um, two-sided communicative technology, or like ones on your skin, ones inside your body that connects through an app? Have we created something like this in other domains or has, has this technology been applied elsewhere as far as you know? I know I've seen like ads going on that you can use it when you're doing physical activity. So the Fitbits, for example, that's a very basic application of the same without the needle, of course. Yeah. I've seen some for us ladies to sort of monitor the hormonal changes during the menstrual cycle. I don't know how complete or how precise it is, but I've seen it passing. Yeah. Other than that, no, I don't really... Uh, hey, that's as many examples <laughs> as I was hoping to get. Excellent. Can I have diabetes without knowing it? Yes, depending on which type. So if you have type 1, you might have some months or maybe year to years where you, your pancreas, the beta cells are being destroyed. So you are going into hyperglycemic state, but you don't feel it or you don't know it until you're diagnosed. Diabetes type 2... You could be in many years and not know it that you're that you have it. So that's why there are guidelines or recommendations that once we are after a certain age, you have to get checked every year, every three years to do the blood test and make sure that everything is within uh, within balance. Yeah. Okay. But it's 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 possible. But it's it's as easy as just getting a blood test, and then based on the results, yeah. you can tell whether you have it or not. Exactly. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> Good to know. Is diabetes something that only exists in the human population or can it develop in other species? Like, are there bison or rainbow trout or butterflies? Who I have... know it exists in cats and dogs. And one or the other, we were able to actually treat it. It was type 1 diabetes and they were able to actually treat it. I did not read further on it, mm -hmm. but it exists in other species. And they were able to treat it either in dogs or cats. To be confirmed. Interesting. Okay, yeah. so the jury's still out on whether non-mammalian species yeah. can develop diabetes, or even whether other mammalian species can develop diabetes type 2. So folks, if you're listening, which you are because you're hearing me say this now, feel free to check that out and send me a message, or even send Miriam a message. Uh, we're going to leave some contact info in the description yeah. in, in case you want to let her know about whether little butterflies are getting oh, yes, diabetes. <laughs> I hope not, but... You never know what's happening in the animal kingdom. It's a big place. Okay. I've heard of a term called pre-diabetes. Can you tell me a bit about pre-diabetes and whether I should be worried about it or not? So pre-diabetes is what happens before diabetes. Okay. <laughs> so basically, it's when your blood sugar values are high, but not high enough to be diagnosed as type 2 diabetes. And in pre-diabetes, usually the person is not medicated. It's, again, lifestyle changes. So the person has to lose some weight. We review their nutrition, some physical activity, and the person can go back to not having pre-diabetes at all. Okay. So, again, after a certain age, you, you start checking. Sometimes the doctor or your blood test will show that you're a little bit higher, but not high enough. And that's where you want to intervene to make sure that you don't go high enough. Hence the recommendation of the once yearly checkups. Gotcha. Okay, I want to circle back now just to talk a bit more about this technology. So you said that it's used to prevent slash reduce fear and frequency of hypoglycemia. How much fear is there about hypoglycemia? I mean, I, I, I know that I'm a, a relatively young, relatively healthy individual, so I don't have that fear. Who are the most fearful? Is it the three million uh, Canadians? 
Well, half the people who actually have diabetes uh, approximately are afraid of hypoglycemia. The issue with hypoglycemia is that when it happens, when it's mild, it's just a little inconvenience in your day. But when it's more severe, it can, as I said earlier, lead to losing consciousness. You can be driving your car on the highway and then, whoops, you drop very low and you end up crashing into someone. So that fear of always having to be sure that you're controlling for it is causing people to actually go the flip way so for example again you have a big interview and you want to make sure that you're on your top game you don't want to fall in hypoglycemia so what are you going to do you're going to try to stay in hyperglycemia or as high as you can so people sometimes do not take all of their insulin or they eat more carbs than they count or they just avoid physical activity completely because they're afraid of being hypoglycemic because that happens now but the complications of hyperglycemia usually happen in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So we don't really see them as now. You only see the hypoglycemia. So that is my main focus. And that's what I really want to see if we can use those technologies to give the person information and to give them basically enough access to that information to be able to take whatever measure they need to take themselves and to remove that unknown factor and that fear. Because we know we use the technology right now to control the blood glycemia, reduce this and like the, the overall hyper issues. But the hypoglycemia aspect and the fear of hypoglycemia aspect, I feel, is a very good addition that needs to be further um, explored. So hypoglycemia is more of like a, a short-term acute condition. Yes. Hypoglycemia is more of a long-term development. Got it. Okay. Well, the the complications of each. So the hypoglycemia, of of course, hypoglycemia has also long-term complications because someone who has hypoglycemia a lot, what's going to happen is that their body is going to sort of make that their new normal. So they will stop sensing those early symptoms and will only feel it when it's severe. So the person can be walking around, feeling okay, and then randomly passes out. So that's without feeling those early signs Mm -hmm. and symptoms of hypoglycemia where they're feeling a little bit off, maybe they have a headache, maybe they're feeling a bit anxious. So those usually are the early symptoms. And sometimes some people, because they have a lot of of hypoglycemia, they stop feeling those symptoms. That's excellent. I think it's, I mean, we're living in unprecedented times in terms of technological advancement and development. You've already mentioned a couple of incredible technologies that I did not know existed until about 15 minutes ago. So that's awesome. And the fact that you're incorporating that in your research is truly wonderful. Other people in your lab, what are they working on? Working on similar things, mostly on diabetes, type 1 diabetes. So I have some colleagues who are trialing keto diet in type 1 diabetes. I have some colleagues who are working on uh, creating an education platform for people who have type 1 diabetes, where basically they can go sign up and they have all the modules about how to use this or how to use that, depending on what their treatment is, depending on what they're more interested in. Do they want to know more about nutrition? Do they want to know more about physical activity? Do they want to know more about how to stay away from hypoglycemia or vice versa? So those are the, the big themes that we're having in the lab right now. Do you think it's important that the general population, I'm talking non-diabetics now, are aware of all of these things? Or is it really only important that we educate those who already have the condition? I feel it is important that we are all aware of the difference of what it is, of what it entails. Because yes, maybe it doesn't touch you directly, but it might touch someone you know, or a friend or family member. And there's also the component of raising awareness to remove the stigma from diabetes. 
when we show diabetes on TV or in shows, it's always, oh, you ate too much sugar, you ate too much candy when you were a child, that's why you have diabetes, but that's not the case. So people sometimes are afraid of being stigmatized, so they have to hide their condition when they really shouldn't. It's just that body ended up being in that situation, and it's not your fault because of that. So that's why I think it's very important that the general public is aware of diabetes and the little detail well not the completely little details <laughs> but you know some of the details just enough to be well educated yeah. like anybody should be about serious conditions yeah. like this absolutely okay excellent well thank you so much for sharing we're almost done i got one final question for you time flies it literally <laughs> flies when you're having fun it flies <laughs> yeah, when you're having fun uh yeah. time flies like a banana so my final question for you is a question i love asking my guests it's the last question of all the episodes at least in recent episodes. And that question is as follows, kind of a situation. Imagine yourself standing at the foot of an auditorium. It's packed to the brim, thousand person auditorium. It's a big one. They're all staring at you. They're waiting, waiting for you to say something. What do you tell them? I would tell them to be critical about the information that they hear and what they see online and on Facebook and all of that. When in doubt, consult a professional and really just be aware of the information that you're fed and be more aware also of what you're going to do with that information so that you're not leading yourself towards a path that's not the healthiest path for you. And yeah, just just use your brain. <laughs> use that brain. Use the brain that you have because it can lead you to so many great things and it can answer so many <laughs> questions for you. You just have to use it. We have access to Google now and Wikipedia and all the information is out there and you can check yourself the sources of that information to make sure that you're using the proper information for you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Marion. This has been awesome. This was great discussing diabetes. I knew very little about it apart from that there were two types. So listeners, I hope you got a lot That's of this That's already as well. more than a lot of people know. <laughs> good, good. Well, there could have been three types. We might discover a new type in the future. We'll never know. Well, actually, I'm going to leave you this little snippet that I just learned about maybe two, three weeks ago. Sure. Alzheimer's actually might be considered type 3 diabetes because it has been found that it has a metabolic source. So in the future years, you might be hearing about a third type and it's going to be Alzheimer's. Oh my goodness. You're dropping a huge bomb on us right now. <laughs> it isn't fair. It isn't fair. Okay. Maybe I'm going to have to have somebody on the show to talk about Alzheimer's. We can, we can pick this up where we left off. <laughs> I have a name for you. <laughs> Excellent. We'll chat about that afterwards. Thanks again, Miriam. This was awesome. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So. Feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.